Hey, U.S. Cellular customers, I've got good news, so don't hit skip forward just yet. I'm talking about their special customer event, Us Days. What's Us Days? It means exclusive offers just for their customers, just to say thanks, like up to $1,200 to upgrade to any new phone. No, I didn't misread that. That's up to $1,200 off. They must really like you all. Us Days at U.S. Cellular. Exclusive offers just for you, just to say thanks. Right now, U.S. Cellular customers could get up to $1,200 to upgrade to any new phone. Visit uscellular.com for terms and restrictions. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. If you could change one thing about your house, what would it be? Would you upgrade your master bathroom, put in a tile shower, maybe a little rain head. Maybe you'd upgrade your kitchen, put in some new countertops and new cabinets. Maybe you're tired of the old dirty carpet and you're ready for some new hardwood floors. Or hey, let's do something cool. We could put in a home theater. We could put in a man cave. Maybe we could even put in an outdoor kitchen, even a pool. I think most everybody, when they first buy their house, they walk around and they say, well, now one day we're going to, oh, and someday we'll, man, let's make someday today at savewithconrad.com. I'm talking to you. If you're a homeowner, there's probably a few things on your honeydew list that you thought you would have had done years ago, but you just didn't have the time or maybe you just didn't have the money. Well, here's the thing. Most of those improvements are going to greatly improve the value of your home. If you've got an outdated kitchen, well, anybody who looks at your house, if you're ever going to sell it, they know it's an outdated kitchen. Why would you wait and make these repairs right before you sell? I've never understood that. So you've lived in this house forever, but now that somebody else is going to buy it, let's fix it up nice. Why not enjoy it right now? Increase the value of your property. And most importantly, increase your enjoyment and do it with no money out of pocket. That's right. You heard me. No money out of pocket. The thing that's kept you from doing it is probably that cash. Why wouldn't you just do that right now at savewithconrad.com? Not only can you get a great interest rate, but we'll also lower your monthly payment in the process. We routinely help our podcast listeners turn their house into their dream home with no money out of pocket, and you'd be surprised how little it adds to your monthly payment. For instance, we just helped a family go ahead and remodel their master bathroom and their kitchen. They even put in an outdoor kitchen and their payment went up $19 a month. Come on now. That is a good decision. Find out how easy it is right now at savewithconrad.com. You don't need perfect credit. You don't need money out of your pocket. But if you're ready to turn your house into your dream home, hit it up right now. Savewithconrad.com. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. And oh, by the way, no house payments for two months and we're licensed in more than 40 states. 
and you don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket to do this. If we can't save you money, we won't waste your time. And even credit scores in the 500s can be approved. So what are you waiting for? Save with Conrad.com. Before we get going today, we need to tell everybody that we've got the best Valentine's Day gift ever. We're really excited about this because we're all looking for something right now that's special, something that is unique, and something that will last forever. And man, when it comes to all that, it doesn't get better than IHateStevenSinger.com. Check this out, man. It's a real 24 karat gold dip rose from Steven Singer Jewelers. That's right, a real long stem rose that's been preserved and then dipped in 24 karat pure gold. I can't believe this is real. It even comes with a lifetime guarantee. They ship it for free in a beautiful gift box with your own personalized message of love. You can't beat it. See it for yourself. I hate stevensinger.com. Here's the best part. It starts at only 59 bucks. Go take a look. It looks like it costs 10 times that. I hate stevensinger.com. Steven Singer Jewelers, one place, one price. So today we're going to be doing something a little different here on the show. It is a best of for orange. So we're going to hit some of the highlights of what I believe to be the best kept secret in wrestling podcasting. You know, the show has gained a lot of momentum in recent weeks, uh, but we want to go back and bring some folks up to speed. So if you're a big time fan of the podcast, share this episode with the wrestling fan in your life. And, uh, I think we're going to have a new subscriber. It's the easiest and cheapest and fastest way to support the show. Just hit that subscribe button and do it in two places. Do it not only on your podcast app, but do it on our YouTube as well. Just go to orange show on youtube.com. Click that subscribe button. And next week we're going to make it up to you. We're bringing you super brawl two. Of course, that's coming your way. Mark your calendar right now. Uh, it's going to happen on the 11th and then on the 18th elimination chamber, 2018. And that's going to be new for me, man. We've never done something that was just two years old. Um, but Arn was there and a lot of people remember 2018 and you know what we're talking about. So we're going to examine it in long form uh, on the 18th. But today let's tell a friend about your very favorite new podcast Arn, here on Westwood one. Hey friends, Tony Schiavone here and welcome to the best of Arn. Conrad, it appears has been lost to the dangers of Las Vegas. And while Conrad and his friends are reenacting the hangover, your good friend, Tony Schiavone, will be your host for the best of Arn right here on Westwood One. So we're several months in. At this point, are you starting to settle in to your your tag team and your partnership and your just real life relationship with Oli? Yeah, I tell you, you can back up. There's I told a story early on in our podcast deal about what ifs and Matt Bourne getting fired, and had he not gotten fired, Ole might not have went out and researched and found the Road Warriors at that time. And that was one of those questions where you went, wow, what if? There was a what if here. And going just because of the relevancy of we're talking about Greensboro and we're talking about Starcade, the very first, I hadn't been to working for Crockett very long and I can't remember, but it wasn't very long. And I was on my first, that was actually my first Greensboro house show, but it was pretty full and it was a lot of money. I want to say it was 300 plus grand. 
hadn't been there that long. Hadn't really got the horse. This was pre-horseman, pre-all that. And I want to say it was probably maybe a month to six weeks after I'd been there. But I got my payoff for that show. And I usually don't discuss money because of the irrelevancy of what it was a long time ago. But this is one of those what ifs. My last week wrestling for Bob Armstrong and the Fullers, there was two ways you could go in those days a promoter would do when you were leaving, when you'd put your notice in. They would either screw you on the way out because they had two weeks, you know, of your money backed up. You didn't get paid for two weeks. So after you left, you got like two checks. Or the ones that wanted to leave a favorable impression, like the Fullers and Bob Armstrong, would give you a really good payoff on the way out. So had the best uh, payoff of the entire 14 months that I'd had in Pensacola was my last check. So they left a huge positive feel good, you know, about their company. Well, I get my check and I'm looking at this and it was less than my last week uh, for the Fullers. And I go, this can't be right. There's no way this can be right. So I went into Jim Crockett, which I had never done. And, you know, after I'd been in the business a little longer and had a family to worry about, let's just say my ball shrunk up a little bit, but I had a set at that point in time. And I went in and went, Hey, this is ridiculous. That Greensboro show was 300 and something thousand dollars. What kind of, kind of payoff is this? Oh, well, Arn, you weren't, uh, you're not positioned where we want you yet. We have big plans for you and all that. I said, listen, if you got big plans for me, which you just said, pay me like a guy that you got plans for. Well, you know, in that position, I think I was second match of the night, maybe wrestling Sam Houston or something like that. He said, well, you know, that's, that's what that pays in that slot. I said, let me ask you something. If I was a blackjack mulligan and walked in here, would you say that to him if you had him in the second match? Well, Jimmy got flustered. And in the back of my head, I'm thinking, I'll just go call Bob and I'll just go back to Pensacola. Because at that point in time, we were driving a bunch and uh, I've been on some really bad houses. So wasn't in the best of moods, and we finally get some some light at the end of the tunnel. You've got a huge house out here, and I'll just go ahead and tell you, it was a $700 payoff. That may sound like a lot of money back then, but not for the conversation I'd had with Dusty and Jimmy Crockett and where we were heading and all these different things and all the miles I was putting in and having rotten. I, I get it. When you got a rotten house, you got a $9,000 house, you got a get paid on that. It's not very good. So that's another one of those that had that conversation have went any further south. I was prepared just to go pack my car up and head back to Pensacola, give Bob a call and say, Hey, can you take me back? And I'm sure he would have. And I actually called him and he said, well, sure, but you ought to give him a chance. You know, he gave me some good advice and, you know, but if not, if you need to play, you've always got a place here. This is a long story short, but it was one of those what ifs that had I left, not being there to be part of that group and name them, you might not have had a four horsemen.
food for thought. Well, thank you for sharing that. That's certainly a story I'd never heard. I don't think you've probably ever even told that story publicly. Have you? Well, I never discussed payoffs and I didn't, it's none of my business. What anybody else makes. Right. I never asked. Nobody ever asked me. You just don't do that in this business. It's just not in good taste, but I thought the relevancy of where it started with Jim Crockett and where it ended and the evolution of all that was for me, that was as important as being on Starcade. How did I get there? And what did I have to do to qualify myself to be in a feature spot on on future Starcades? And I just thought it was part of the story. So I know it was long-winded. I apologize to the <laughs> listening audience and apologize to you. No, not at all. Listen, that's what we're here for, man. We want your stories and, and nobody's giving us that type of insight but you. I mean, I got to know, though, did he make it right? He did not make it right. It stuck, but what I saw was a gradual uh, escalation in my opponents, and I saw a gradual escalation in my payoffs. Because in those days, you would have normally just, you know, gotten fired. Jimmy Crockett would have just said, oh, that doesn't work for you. Well, how does this work for you? You finish up tonight. Could have very easily went that way, one way or the other. You know, he had all the power, not me. The difference was I was 25, 26 years old. Whatever I was, I didn't have any wife. I didn't have any kids, and I didn't give a shit. There was probably 15 places to work at that time. And I was gung-ho, and, I, you know, I got to a big territory. After now, I had worked for Watts. I had worked for Ole. I had worked for... Uh, Continental, and uh, I had some seasoning behind myself. I was confident in my promos. I was confident in my ability to work at that time, three years in or whatever I was. And it takes a little longer than that, but you couldn't tell me that at the time. I was I thought I had her down, and uh, I did have it down enough to at least bluff my way through a, a conversation with that with Jimmy Crockett at that time. So you know I was, and I think he sensed that. Because there wasn't any poor, poor, pitiful me. It was, hey, this is bullshit. You know, I heard what the house was. I know enough about the business now that it warrants a little bigger payoff than than what I got. But he did not make it right. So there's another time it wasn't made right. <clears throat> Talk to me a little bit about Oli's position within the organization. You know, I think a lot of our listeners sometimes confuse Georgia Championship Wrestling and Jim Crockett Promotions because... They were both on TBS. Talk to us a little bit about what Ole's position was within the company. Well, they went to Ole and, you know, they said, you know, this was all a shoot. We got a kid down here, you know, he's an Anderson. Apparently we, we got a little bit of the background on that. We understand you gave him his name and all that. Well, Ole didn't even remember that, you know, Ole owned Georgia championship wrestling, which he purchased from Jim Barnett. So his last history in the business was being the boss, being the booker, being a top guy and all that that entails as far as payoffs and, and financial reward and all those things. So they said, Hey, you might want to watch the show. 
because he had removed himself from the business entirely, you know, but you know, that kid that you gave a name to, and he told Ole will tell you the story. Hey, I don't even remember that. Well, let's see. So he watched the show and he went, damn, that kid's gotten a lot better apparently because, you know, I didn't remember him, but there's some potential there. And they said, would you like to come back and work some? Well, Ole was holding all the cards. Ole's a wealthy man. You know, he's definitely wealthy at that time. And, you know, they were asking him. He didn't need them. They needed him. And uh, would you be interested in doing some tags? So he agreed to it, and uh, Ole came in holding all the cards. And they they were trying to expand already with uh, to go back and run Ole's old territory, which was Georgia. And then they would run tours up in Ohio, West Virginia, and it was a separate territory. You'd go up there once or twice a month, and then you would run the Georgia towns. And uh, Ole was very familiar with it, so they sent us down and put us in an angle with Manny Fernandez and Thunderbolt Patterson to try to, and they put us on top down there. And I think Dick Slater was the resident booker or at least carrier of the information at the time. So they were already trying to expand and revive Ole's old territory. At the meeting, Bischoff actually encouraged wrestlers to call two or three people they are normally strongly discouraged from talking to. Specifically, he said Wade Keller and Dave Meltzer about the contents of these meetings where he's bearing flair because he says he wants his side of the story out and uh, figuring that under the normal circumstances, if this wasn't a work, he'd just fire Ric Flair. And number two, and this is a big one, Quote, Arn Anderson was in the room when Bischoff was calling Ric Flair a swerve artist, bullshit artist, etc., and he didn't react at all. Then again, taking the other approach, it wasn't Anderson's place in that situation to react, and if he had reacted strongly at the boss bearing his best friend in front of everyone, if this wasn't an angle, it probably wouldn't have been an intelligent reaction when it comes to his own long-term employment. Not only that, but if he had reacted in that situation, it would have looked even more like an angle. And then number three, a private contractual matter between a wrestler and Bischoff has never been anything he's made a big public deal about in the past to wrestlers and bearing a wrestler as marketable and legendary as flair to other wrestlers to the degree Bischoff did wouldn't make sense as the reaction was strongly negative across the board towards Bischoff for his diatribe. What do you make of the theory that, Hey, this is a work. Did that ever cross your mind? I mean, you, you were pretty close to the situation, but. This was the company that liked to do the quote unquote, wink, wink, worked shoot and Bischoff with the whole Pillman thing, just a couple of years prior. Did you think, you know, this might just all be bullshit? No, I never looked at it being a work again. We're going back to legal. What's legal. What's not to have that kind of conversation about starving a guy out and starving his family out and all that in front of his peers. I know it's morally wrong. I don't know how. And if you start to get into the nuts and bolts of this contract and all that, I'm, I'm pretty sure you can't discuss that with other people. Don't know. Just assuming. Everyone looked at me for a response. Uh, I asked the world, how are you going to win that thing if I go... Hey, you're way the fuck out of line. That's too personal. 
I just said that to my boss. And guess what? A guy that's not even involved in it, that has nothing to do with it, gets fired. Because that's what would have happened. Have no doubt. So no reaction. You know, it doesn't matter what you feel. It's another class situation of where I just had to keep my mouth shut, bite my lip, turn the other cheek, and just, hey, it, it was what it was and, and how it played out, it was going to play out. I was in a terrible position from a reaction standpoint. You did a uh, radio appearance in the middle of all this and said, to be perfectly honest with you, this thing has been pretty tight-lipped. The company has its stance and they feel justified legally. And I guess morally Rick has his stance and he feels legally and morally that he's correct. Apparently they've come to a crossroads on contract negotiations. And I don't know if it's length of time on the contract or the numbers, or the number of days a year they're requiring Rick to work. I'm real sure of that. And I think in order to protect me, Rick hasn't told me a lot. I know my loyalty to Rick is as a friend. And that's one thing, but my loyalty to the company is another. I have a job to do, so I pretty much keep my nose out of it. I hope at some point this can be resolved because I think WCW and the world of professional wrestling at large is a better place with Ric Flair in it. Boy, that, that lines up exactly with what you're saying now, huh? Well, I had no idea that was even out there. I don't even recall doing that, but that sounds exactly like the way I felt and the way I would say it. It's probably a hundred percent accurate. About a month after WCW sued Rick, Rick did actually file a countersuit in Charlotte on April. I'm sorry, May 18th. And he's trying to get a judge to nullify his contract, which would allow him to join the WWF. And, uh, it's pretty well known that flair could at this point return to WCW if he wants to, and the lawsuit would be dropped, but he's hesitant to do so. That's according to Meltzer's report. So it does feel like. A month in, Bischoff has maybe cooled down and said, okay, this is stupid. Let's just get back to work. Did you have uh, any idea that that does, I guess my question is, does Eric ever come to you and say, okay, listen, Arn, I've tried to put you, not let you be in the middle, but this is all stupid. Um, I want to drop the lawsuit. I want to get Rick back. If you talk to him, I'm not asking you to call him, but if you talk to him, would you let him know that? I'm open to a conversation and let's just let bygones be bygones. Or does Eric ever have such a conversation with you? No, no, that never occurred. And I just wonder what, what suddenly, you know, and, and not being able to pinpoint in my mind what was going on with business at the time. Had we hit a stalling point? Did we need a shot in the ass? Uh, and that would have been Rick Flair walking back in the door. I would think immediately, you know, what would have caused the change of heart with Eric and unless I could go back in time and have the figures in front of me and what was going on on television and what was working and what wasn't working, why he would suddenly have that change of heart. I have no idea. Something that's come up over the years that I don't know if you'd be privy to, but I can't wait to ask you about, even if you say, I don't know about that. Shane Douglas has said during this time, he was talking to you. And you were essentially the middleman and, and having ECW negotiate with Rick to come in and have a series of matches against Shane. So in theory, ECW would run a show in Charlotte and Rick would win. Then they would run a show in Pittsburgh and Shane would win. And then the third match would take place at the ECW arena and Shane would win. And I find that 
to be oddly fascinating that that was ever discussed. The idea of not the WWE CW, but the original ECW that flair would have ever even entertained that idea. Did you ever have such a conversation with Shane Douglas about this? I have no recollection of that conversation happening. Now, could I run into Shane somewhere? And if Rick was still in limbo, that have been a hypothetical conversation after a couple of beers, maybe, if we happen to be in the same place. But I don't remember. Not to say that it didn't happen. I just have no recollection of it. It seems mighty far-fetched. But, hey, crazier things have happened. All right, Arn. Hygiene and wrestling. Pretty important. You know, it's something that fans have looked at for a long time. Like, hey, why does everybody shave under their armpits? Because it's just nasty not to. Especially if you're going to have somebody in the headlock. It's just, you know, common courtesy. Well, the same thing is true at home. Uh, this was like a good place to mention that. Support for Arn is brought to you by Manscaped.com, who by now you know is the best at men's below-the-belt grooming. You see, Manscaped offers precision engineer tools for your family jewels. Guys, listen up. Valentine's Day is just around the corner, and you don't want to be that guy with the bush or that nerd who cut his balls trying to get it on. Whether you have a Valentine or not, you need to be prepared to look good down there. You all know somebody who's maybe had a little manscaping accident in the bathroom at like CSI, Alabama. Don't bleed out. How about this? Don't use the same trimmer on your sack that you use on your face, you nasty bastard. That's why Manscaped has redesigned the electric trimmer. I can't believe this is real. The Manscaped engineering team spent 18 months perfecting the greatest ball hair trimmer ever created. And they've just released, are you ready for this? The Lawnmower 3.0. That's right. Listen up, you motherfuckers. Their third generation trimmer features a cutting edge ceramic blade to prevent manscaping accidents. Millions of balls are about to be nick free thanks to Manscaped's advanced skin safe technology. And when I tell you this is premium, I mean premium. The battery will last up to 90 minutes. Now, I don't know what kind of fucking woolly mammoth you are, but if you can't get the shit done in 90 minutes, you need to see a doctor. Anyway, one of the coolest features is a new LED light, which illuminates the grooming areas for a closer, more precise trimming. And who doesn't want to see their sack with an LED light on it? Now, they've also upgraded to a 7,000 RPM motor with quiet stroke technology, which I had to use at my in-laws a few years ago. And let's not forget about the charging stand. Show off your mower loud and proud because this intelligently designed stand is a rapid charging dock powered by USB. We're going to get your balls up and running faster than ever. Get yourself the best gift of all this Valentine's Day. The Manscaped Lawnmower 3.0. It's really a gift for both you and her because when there's less hair down there, she might feel like doing something special. Get 20% off plus free shipping when you use the promo code ARN, A-R-N, at manscaped.com always use the right tools for the job your balls will thank you let's go over that one more time you get 20 percent off and free shipping when you use the promo code arn a-r-n at manscaped.com that's 20 percent off with free shipping at manscaped.com just use the code arn stay sexy this valentine's day and manscape your sack mate 
Yeah, we, we should probably go back and uh, start with uh, the conversation, the initial conversation we had sitting out by the pool with Vince. And uh, he informed us that uh, he definitely wanted us. He uh, made us feel really good about ourselves during that conversation. He had all the facts and figures in his head and you know, he said, you guys will bring credibility to my company, and that made us feel good, and he didn't have any wild ideas as far as costuming or any of that. So we felt very good about that. And uh, he said, guys, I don't have guaranteed contracts, but my word is good, and uh, I guarantee you, you guys will make more than you made with Crockett. And we didn't have anything else to go by, so that's basically what we had to go with and uh we came in and we got to wrestle all the all the top teams and everything was going good until we kind of checked the figures and at the fiscal year we were about 50 grand behind at about the eight minute about the eight excuse me eight month mark we're 50 grand what we had made with crockett behind so we asked for a meeting at TV. We went in and we reminded him of the conversation. We uh, also told him where we were financially at that point in the fiscal year. He got this look on his face like it was he wasn't aware of that. Well, maybe he wasn't. And uh, he said, uh, "Okay, guys, I remember the conversation, and give me uh, give me some time to sort through this, and we'll get together at the next set of TVs, which." was three weeks, as we've discussed, uh, later. So, you know, we went back to work and thinking everything was going to be made right. So let's talk about that. You know, it, it is a different era, you know, and I know some of our younger listeners are going to think, what, three weeks? But it's not like he could send you an email or send you a text or call you on your cell phone. You know, the, your method of communication was a lot different back then. And even if he mailed you a letter at your house, it's not like you were home to get it. So in a weird way, meeting you at TV was, was just par for course at the time. Was it not? Yeah. That's where you, that's where any beefs you had, you couldn't resolve them. You know, you didn't want to call the office and bug them up there. Um, that's just one of those things that, you know, if you start, if you were one of those guys that called the office, you were stooging or something of, of that magnitude. It wasn't that you were just calling about your business. It was just, there's a bit of a stigma that was tied to that. So I didn't feel comfortable about that. And if you wanted to get anything resolved, you had to wait. To, it was like common knowledge. Okay. At TV, get a meeting with Vince and Vince had a lot of meetings with guys at TV. So after he promises to sort of square up with you and figure out what's heads or tails, uh, and just assess where you've been. In three weeks, you guys go make your loops, and then you and Tully show up to TV, and? Well, I'm, I walk in the door with a mile-wide, you know, smile on my face, thinking this guy's, you know, going to cut me a $50,000 check, get us up to where we need to be. Uh, we set up a meeting for the day. We go in. Vince is putting on his uh, his. Uh, gym shoes he's got on his sweats he's getting ready to go out and go work out yeah come on in guys i got time to talk to you right now and um so here's the way it went he said uh 
you know, check the books and you're right about that. You know, if you guys will just, uh, if you guys will just hang with me, I'll, um, I'll make this right down the road and we'll, we'll get you where you need to be and everything. And, uh, Yada da 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 and da 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 and that's where we came up with the way to make it right is to cut us a check today and get us up to where we need to be at least at the same pay scale we were on the the year before with Crockett and uh, he got this look on his face and he says well guys I can't I can't write you each a fifty thousand dollar check today I mean that's it's not the way I do business, but you have my word. Well, he had already went back on his word. So we said, if you can't do that, then we'd like to put our notice in. Three months, which was a lot of time in those days. Nobody gave a three-month notice because they could just decimate you on television, just crucify you, any number of things. Um. And man, he got a really, really crazy look on his face. Like, so let me let me back up a little bit. Would this have been after SummerSlam or before SummerSlam? Probably after, right? Yeah, it would have been about. Um, we finished up, or I finished up at. Uh, let's see, not, not Survivor too- Series eighty nine. Nine, yeah. So back that out about three months. So that would have been about the time that we we gave that notice. So not too terribly long after SummerSlam, because SummerSlam would have happened at the end of August. So September, October, November, you're probably early September, maybe. Yeah, and coming off of SummerSlam, we'd had a really good match with the Hearts, yeah. you know, the Heart Foundation, and. Uh, you know, we beat those guys, which was a big feather in our cap. You know, they put us over and, uh, I mean, we were rolling. It's not like, you know, they were using us badly and we weren't producing or any of those things. It just mathematically was not adding up. Let me ask, I know we're getting deep in the weeds on this, but when it's all, it's often been said, and this could be bullshit, but we've heard from some other guys like a Scott Hall, for instance, he would say. Bret Hart didn't care how much money he made as long as he, as long as he was the champion with the idea being that, yes, this is a business, but a lot of the guys really care about their, um, their status within the company. And that exists in the real business world too, where some people are more motivated by the title on their business card than the number on their tax return. Do you, did you consider that in between TVs perhaps, because it sounds like the timeline would be, you would have met with Vince prior to SummerSlam. And then the first time, and then you have the follow-up meeting and ask for your notice three weeks later after SummerSlam, did you guys think, well, Hey, he must be going to make us whole here. He's putting us over the heart foundation on pay-per-view. If he had no intention of squaring up with us, maybe he would beat us. And then if that doesn't happen, did you think in hindsight, Hey, maybe he just thought he'd fucking let us win on pay-per-view and we would sort of forget about the money we feel like we're owed. Well, I think by that point in time, just looking at our past record, you know, and the little tests that he had thrown out, like the Tom McGee matches and things like that, that it wasn't about winning or losing for us. It was about making money. That's, you know, but the the bottom line was, if you were the champion, you were going to make more money. The tag champions, 
you know, on live events, made more money than just a team they were building. It was in a different slot. So the two kind of went hand in hand. Yeah, no, I get it. So, you know, you, you realize hey, he's not going to square up with us. This is back more present day here. He's putting his gym shoes on and he says, I can't just write you guys a couple of $50,000 checks. Does Tully is Tully the one who says, well, we'd like to give our notice and, and we'll give you three months or what does that look like in that, in that moment? I think Tully was the one that's actual mouth the words which, you know, kind of put him in shock. And we had already talked about this, you know, even though going in, we had a positive attitude, he's going to make this right. You're right. The the neon sign to me was we would have never beat the Hart Foundation at SummerSlam. Right. If, if he wasn't going to, you know, do right by us. So we went in there, you know, tippy-toeing, thinking, well, okay, today's going to be a good day. And, and it just kind of gut-punched to both of us. But just like we told, you know, Dusty, the night that we were leaving, we had our B plan and we were going to stick with it. You know, if he's not going to make it right, we're going to put our notice in today. Um, And during this time, come to find out, after this meeting broke up and we talked to a few people in the next day or next couple days, and um, everybody's money was down. We didn't know that. And there was no reason for it because business was good. You never knew, and we never found out just why during that particular time, everybody's money was down. But uh, when we told him we want to put in our 90-day notice, he looked at us and went, oh, okay, guys, well, do me a favor. Um, Give me another three weeks. We didn't say that. He just said, give me till the next TVs to resolve this. I don't want to lose you guys. Okay, we'll do that. And uh, as we got up and started to walk out, he started pulling his tennis shoes off. And I just kind of glanced at him and he went, I can't go to the gym now. So at least he gave us, I think he had, it was general concern that he was going to lose us. Because him not going to the gym was a big deal. Right. And uh, it was a huge deal because that was something he did every television in the early afternoon. So, you know, we at least knew that we had had some impact. And when we walked out of there, uh, you know, you know how it is. You tell one person, they tell a person, somebody else tells a person. All the brain busters put their, they put their notice in. You know, there was a little bit of a buzz around. Right. Um, well, you saw the line start to form outside of Vince's office of guys that were disgruntled come to find out that wanted to leave. Well, the contract that we had signed with Vince, which everyone had signed, which this is almost so ridiculous. It's nobody would believe it, but it was for 10 days of 150 a day. That's all he guaranteed you in a year's time. So $1,500 is the contract value. Correct. Okay. Wasn't worth the paper it was, it was written on, obviously, but you would have to get a lawyer and fight it, and you know how that goes. His pockets are deeper than your pockets and all that. So you were kind of stuck with it. Um, but when that line kind of formed, and I don't even remember who was in that line, but there were some disgruntled people that – their money was down too. 
we heard that he was heard saying, you know, tell those guys I'm not talking to anybody else today or something like that, that these contracts are legitimate. You can't just break this. You're not just, you know, these guys aren't just going to break their contract. You know, it was something like that. Like, you know, I'm going to stop this bleeding right here. Right. And we kind of heard that secondhand. Uh, so that kind of put us in a situation where, okay, it's, it's either, uh, do us right or let us go. Three weeks later, have another meeting. We walk in and it's a different look on his face. Okay, guys, I've reviewed all the figures and da 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 da. And you're you're right about that. Um, we're gonna go ahead, go ahead and let you put you know turn your notice in, and we'll apply the last three weeks towards the ninety days. Wow. It, yeah, I mean, you know, we were, you know, at that point, because the money had not came up at all, I started to get excited again. It was like when I was, once I made the decision to leave, you know, Jim Crockett Promotions, that night, once I had made that decision and committed, I started to feel good about it because I had pl thought plenty about it. And with the travel schedule up there being what it was and being dog tired and fatigued and talking to a three-year-old that's crying on the phone, Daddy, when you're going to come home, you've been gone a long time. It was the right decision. So, um, let's give some can... context to that for a minute. You know, you had told me before here on the show that, you know, the, the travel schedule was just beyond compare you know, what you were used to with Jim Crockett promotions. And, you know, you had a wife and, and, and a young kid at home and you were missing a lot of critical stuff because, you know, maybe once upon a time, a lot of the towns you were working or drives and you were centrally located in Charlotte. Well, now there's no such thing. Uh, you're on an airplane every single day. First thing in the morning, first flight out of five or 6 AM. So the quality of life is way, way different. Your money's down and you're missing your family. You're getting pressure from every angle here. Are you not? I feel like the roof caved in. Add one more thing to that. If you can believe this now, just like it's hard to believe the $1,500 contract we signed. Right. Somebody in their office came up with the bright idea that, uh, okay, another way to save money is. We will fly these guys out to the first day of their loop, whether that be a 10-day loop, 12-day loop, 5-day loop, whatever it may be, but we'll make them buy their own plane ticket home. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. What now? You have to buy your own air home? Shake your head, stick your finger in your ear and ring it out. Yes, you have to buy your own plane ticket home. So I'm going to fly you on this loop and may end up with you ending up in uh, Calgary, Canada. $700 for back then. Now, this is 88 or 89, whatever the year was, dollars. 700 bucks. We ended up one time during this period in Calgary. It cost us 700 bucks to get home. Well, not, only, not only is that immoral, that could possibly even be illegal. Who knows? But it happened. It's a very real thing. 
so uh, what are you supposed to think? My God, you're talking about getting kicked in the ass. If there was a dis- question of if we made the right decision or not, <laughs> that ought to button it up for you. And in your old shoot interview from two decades ago, you were asked about negotiating with Vince and you said, quote, I put out a feeler and he said, absolutely. And something happened in Houston that wasn't to our liking as far as being treatment on television that had nothing to do with winning or losing or who we were wrestling. But there was an incident that I'd rather not go into. I addressed it with Jim Crockett and he didn't handle it properly. So I went and picked up the phone and called Vince McMahon. So what happened in Houston that made you call Vince McMahon? Okay. Um, on that very same show, we went out and had a hell of a match and a hell of a fight with the midnight express left the audience just exhausted. And for some reason they felt they being the powers that be that I should go out after that and lose to Steve Williams, Dr. Death in four minutes. Now, I couldn't have beat Steve Williams with a baseball bat and a blowtorch and a dump truck backing over him. Not the point. The point is, Arn Anderson had value with the company. I just went out and proved it a little bit earlier once again, and that's all they can think to use me for, thinking that big that Steve Williams, who was Bill Watts' product, was big in that area of the company and that area of the country for that matter beside the point it was just almost like it was just done to me in addition to what had been done to Tully him getting taken off of the plane I started to get a little paranoid and then I got a little bit pissed and then I started to think it through okay sort through your sort through your anger sort and it had nothing to do with Steve Williams like I said, this was a decision made by, you know, who knows. But then I thought, okay, let me just go ask Jimmy. And I asked Jimmy, I said, well, I did what you asked, but but why? Do you think that was the right thing to do? I just did what the booker, I just backed up what the booker said he wanted to do, Arn. And that told me all I needed to know. I knew already knew I had a job offer in good standing from the other company. When it was over, I went back and told Tully. I said, I'm getting on the phone as soon as we get to one. And I'll and I'll I'll get this all resolved. We're out of here. And Tully's on board? More than on board. So you put out this feeler. You know, I assume you're, you're still talking about Barry Dorso at that point, And then Darso puts a bug in Vince's ear and Vince calls you back and you guys have a conversation or did you jump on a plane and fly to Stanford? No, we were told when I got back and called the next day, we were going to be in uh, Philly and we're wrestling the midnight express again in Philadelphia, for God's sakes, you know, how excited we all four were about all six of us were about that, obviously. Right. Sure. You, you can just anticipate those people in Philadelphia who are blood and guts. They got four guys that are going to go out and give it to them, blood and guts. 
so that, you know, we were all very, very excited about that. So anyway, I called Darso. He says, I'll get back in touch with you. We get to Philly, private plane. He says, okay, I just spoke to somebody in the office. Vince wants you to fly to Stanford in the morning. You'll have two plane tickets waiting for you at the airport. He'll have a limo pickup, going to bring you to his house, and uh, he'd like to talk to you guys. So we get up the next morning. We fly to uh, New York. Limo picks us up, takes us to Vince's house. We're out by the pool, and we have our discussion. You know, I, I'd love to, you know, he could – Vince in those days could just have you floating on air. When he talked to you for five minutes, you'd just turn and walk off and you'd feel like you were three feet above the ground. He had all your history. He had, uh, you know, all the accomplishments and really was complimentary. And he, he asked us what we were going to make, you know, or what we'd been making, excuse me. He said, you know, what have you guys been making? And we told him and he says, well, I can, you know, we don't have guaranteed contracts with my company. We have opportunity. He said, but I guarantee you guys will make more than you made with Crockett. So don't worry about that. And we took him at his word and uh, we agreed on a start date and we asked him what he wanted us to do about the world tag titles. Did, you know, did he want us to just to turn them in or he said, no, what do you think you should do? And I said, well, I, Bobby Eaton and the Midnight Express are, are friends of mine and they're business partners of mine. And uh, I'd like to do the right thing. I'd like to drop the the titles to, to uh, Bobby myself, take the fall on me. So you do what you think is right, Arn. And that's, we got back to Philly, got down to the arena, went in and we uh, had a talk with Dusty and uh, I told him that's what I'd like to do. And he said, fine. Let's pump the brakes right there for a minute. I want to clarify <laughs> This meeting with Vince and Stanford by the pool, this is happening the morning of the Philadelphia show. The Philadelphia show is at night, right? Correct. When you're meeting with, with, uh, Vince by the pool, I know you don't get any specifics about cash, but does he give you any specifics about dates? Because in that era, they were madmen running shows two times a day sometimes and running two and three crews. Uh, road warrior is a, a, an understatement for what the schedule was back then. Is that discussed at all at that point? Well, no, he did not go into it at all. Um, and to be honest with you, I said earlier that, uh, it was a huge consideration on me staying with Crockett because I had, you know, it had come through the great fine. Not only were they making huge money through their marketing and through the houses and all that. They were also running three towns a night, and they're working their ass off, and we all knew that. But for the first time in my life, I had been uh, insulted professionally. I felt like I had been used and abused, believe it or not. And you look at it on face value, going out and having a four-minute match with with Dr. Death Steve Williams and getting beat right in the middle of the ring should not be a big deal. Had the timing not been what it was and the issues not been what they were and the sovereignty, if that's the correct word, of the company being at stake. Because let me tell you, when Steve Williams beat me, the roof did not come off the place. There was like a look of disbelief in the audience of, well, why the hell did they do that? Right. I don't, and, uh, and so I didn't think – when I made that decision 
to go see Vince the next day, I did not even consider the number of days I would be working, which was probably one of uh, the bigger mistakes I made. But I had to trust my gut on this situation. And at that point in time, I was just pissed and felt disrespected. And, and I hadn't felt that if at all to that degree since I'd been in the business. And if I, if I had, I didn't remember when. Did you discuss creative with Vince at all? Did he say, I've got some ideas in mind or what about this? Or what about that? Any sort of creative or does Bobby Heenan even come up at that point? He he did not come up. He just said, I'd like to use y'all as a team. He said, it's not broke. I'm not going to mess with it. Okay. Aaron, we've talked about a lot of no brainers here on this show. Things that maybe we're overthinking things that, you know, maybe we can armchair quarterback. But something you don't want to mess up, something you don't want to overthink, something you don't want to armchair quarterback. I hate Steven Singer. There's this guy in Philly you've been hearing about, uh, and I've been telling you about his diamonds here on the show for years. If you've ever been to Philadelphia, you've probably seen his billboards. You've heard about it on the radio. I hate Steven Singer. He's been making it too easy to buy gifts for over four decades. And now Valentine's Day is here. You're probably thinking, I'll just get her flowers again. But here's the deal. Those flowers are going to die and end up in the trash within a week. Give her a gift that lasts as long as your love. A real 24-karat gold dip rose from Steven Singer Jewelers. A real long stem rose preserved and dipped in pure 24-karat gold. This real rose will last forever, and it comes with a lifetime guarantee. All shipped for free in a beautiful gift box with your own personalized message of love. Now, to be clear... These roses, they'll never wilt or die and don't need water. And they'll remind her each and every day of your love. Now, if this is your first Steven Singer red rose, I should tell you it's a classic and it starts at only 59 bucks. Go online right now and take a look for yourself at IHateStevenSinger.com. When you get there, click on the roses and man, just become a hero this Valentine's Day. It's that simple. It's IHateStevenSinger.com. Steven Singer Jewelers, one place, one price. One more time. I hate stevensinger.com. It's a no brainer. You got to go check this out. It looks like it costs 10 times as much. Be a hero this Valentine's day. And I hate stevensinger.com. Let's talk about sting for a minute. When did you first hear about sting possibly coming in? It feels like it's been a long time coming. You know, Bruce Pritchard has freestyled that he was in conversation with sting way back when Watts got bought out that perhaps he could have come over. And what if it was his time back then, would he have been the guy to replace the ultimate warrior in that same spot? Would it have been Hogan and sting at WrestleMania six? Of course we know that didn't happen, but Ric Flair made his way over the four horsemen made their way over lots of folks jump ship from WCW or the NWA at the time to the WWF and those who didn't, well, they made the jump after the buyout guys like Booker T guys like diamond Dallas page. But Sting still marched to the beat of his own drummer. He was on the sidelines and then eventually took a flyer on Impact Wrestling and Dixie Carter and TNA Wrestling. And he was there for a long, long time. And it felt like he was never going to make it to the WWF. And he finally does here. Did you try to bend his ear over the years and try to pitch it? Or was this the first time it comes up that you know of? What can you tell us about Sting and and coming into the company after all that time? Well, he and I didn't have that kind of relationship. We, you know, we were friends when we saw each other. Uh, I had nothing but respect for him. Uh, 
as a person and as a businessman, I wouldn't have felt comfortable calling and trying to coax him to come to work. I felt like he was loyal to WCW, and if he would have came with the buyout, it would have made that package a lot, obviously, a lot bigger and a lot more impressive because um, there were a lot of guys who chose not to come at that particular time and came at different times, like you said earlier. Um, Sting was pretty much in control of his own destiny for the entire time he was with WCW. He was the lead guy. He was the go-to guy. He was the figurehead. He was the, the face of the company. He pretty much called his own shots, and the guy made several fortunes, and he was able to have a different path other than coming to the WWE at that particular time. I think he would have just been a superstar in the room with a lot of other big superstars. When you got The Undertaker and Kane and Steve Austin and Rock and, and Shawn Michaels and Triple H and all these guys standing around the room, you're not the guy. Now, I don't know if that concerned him or if that was even an issue that he even thought about, or um, I don't know what the thought process was. I just know that you can wait too long and you can still have your moment in time. Would have been a lot bigger if when he did get his moment, which was the match with Triple H at WrestleMania, would have been nice if he prevailed, but uh, it is what it is. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, the rumor and innuendo sting has said for years that he never came to the WWE because he wasn't sure they would use him. Right. And he says he once heard that the rock asked Booker T who he used to be. And that made sting not want to come in when he actually does come in Meltzer would write for years, there was an easy answer to the trivia question of who was the biggest name in North American wrestling to never step foot in a WWE ring. The answer was Sting. And at the 2014 Survivor Series, Sting, at the age of 55, took his name off the list. For years, this seemed like something that would never happen. And after how his contemporaries from WCW, whether it's Lex Luger, or the Steiner Brothers, or the Road Warriors, went to the WWF and had all, well, very little good to say. In fact, they all came back with negative stories. Sting was always guaranteed one of the top spots in WCW and top money. It really made no sense to go. And in 2001, when WCW folded, Sting was 42 at the time, and he figured his career was over. And things have come full circle. A decade earlier, Sting and Luger would talk about how Ric Flair was past 40 and should retire, and now he was the same age. He did little wrestling for several years. He'd made his money. He'd gotten heavily into religion. He was raising his kids. And he became, quote-unquote, real estate Steve at Gold's Gyms in Southern California, where most of the semi-celebrity clientele didn't even know he used to be a famous pro wrestler. Then TNA and Spike TV called, offering him roughly half a million a year per year, where he would work a very limited schedule, television, and pay-per-views when needed, and he could help jumpstart the promotion. As we mentioned, he was a big addition to the video game here. He'd been doing a lot of promotional appearances, and just as they had done with The Ultimate Warrior, when he was a big part of the video game, it led to him coming in. For years and years, a lot of people thought the dream match was going to be Sting and The Undertaker at WrestleMania, as you alluded to earlier, and wound up being a loss to Triple H. And I think most people assume 
that triple H was going to lose that night. Since this was stings big WrestleMania moment, maybe those folks weren't really paying attention all those years though. Anybody who was knew that triple H was going to win. So we'll talk about the WrestleMania match another time. I'm sure lots of controversy to go around. Uh, the result of this show is, uh, in the observer reader poll, he would ask thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs in the middle. 15.3% gave it a thumbs in the middle. 24.9% gave it a thumbs down. 59.8% gave it a thumbs up. Aaron, where would you land on this? Thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs in the middle. What do you think though, for this one? Thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs in the middle. I think it will be remembered by the fans to be a, uh, a nice moment in time. You know, I, I'm like everybody else that's got some experience in the business. You know, I think I'm a genius too sometimes, and I like to Monday morning quarterback something. The audience, especially the guys that grew up on Sting, to see him come down in this favorable light and do this good thing for a bunch of guys that he's not particularly close with, if at all, if he knows any of them at all, but he does the right thing for the company, saves the day, he's superhero for the day. I think the ones that grew up with Sting as their hero had something they can hang their hat on, a button on his career, and and, and a feel-good evening. If you had it to do over again, you said, you know, you think you're a genius and you rebooked the territory like a lot of guys. What do you think uh, would have been a better way to debut staying than here at Survivor Series against the Authority? Well, I think that's okay, but he needed he it, things needed to look a lot grimmer than what they looked, and have Sting come down and be be that Sting that I remember, and that Sting kicked everybody's ass. I know he kicked all four of ours plus JJ. It just didn't have enough for me. It didn't have enough explosion, pizzazz, whatever you want to call it, uh, excitement, over the top, sting splashing everybody, sting clotheslining all the guys out over the top, all that good stuff that you would want to see in about a one-minute segment of action. I just think it, uh, you know, the three minute stare down and all that, that's great. You want to see Sting come down and make a difference right away. And I think you have a dip. It didn't rumble to the point that it, that rumbling overrode the fact that you weren't getting any action right away. Let's, uh, let's talk about the next match. You're in this one. We've got the powers of pain and the rockers and the young stallions and the heart foundation. And they're going to be taking on, oh, also the British Bulldogs. God damn, there's a lot of tag teams here. And they're taking on Demolition, the Rougeos, the Conquistadors, the Bolsheviks, and the Brainbusters. And Meltzer would say this was a really great match with guys tagging in and out and going all out. And it was the pace of a hot Japanese match until the last few minutes. And he even says in his write-up, Blanchard and Anderson were the highlight of the match, particularly their first meetings with other famous tag teams like the Bulldogs, Red Heart and the Rockers. Uh, it comes down to uh, Bulldogs and Powers of Pain versus Conquistadors and Demolition. Ultimately, um, it's written here. Uh, then Arn signaled it was time to go home and finish all the fun. So the Rockers and Brainbusters went at it to start the feud, and both were disqualified at 27 minutes and 57 seconds. 
and had a lighthearted brawl back to the dressing room. So this is where you get your feud kicked off, but he's very, very complimentary of your, your work here. Uh, you get a ton of time, like 33 minutes here in the match. No, my apologies. 42 minutes in this match, I think is right. Uh, three and three quarter stars, big time match, but God, this has got to be challenging when you've got 10 guys on the apron to this side and 10 guys on the apron at that side. And then obviously two dudes in the middle. So there's, there's 18 dudes on the apron. That's got to be challenging to work around. Is it not? It's the screaming shits. And let me tell you why. And for the 18 years that I was a producer, I asked periodically, not every year, but every few years, this was the one thing. If you think about it, you got to go, well, I'll be damned. Do you know how stupid you feel where you got this match going on and you got the whole theory of survivor series is when the match is over, the way you win the match is you still have members of your team surviving and there are no members of the other team left. Correct. Right. That's the theme of survivor series. The thing I could never get past that made no sense to me is you would have a finish go down right in front of four guys who were standing there three feet away and nobody made a save. What sense does that make? Right. You would never want one of your teammates to get beat because that lessened your odds of being the sole survivor or a survivor with all your teammates or half of them or whatever. It was just one of those things that I could never get an answer to. I would, when I would ask, they would look at me and I would get that look like, ah, oh, shit, he's trying to make sense out of an unsensible business again. But when it was all said and done, if it didn't make sense to me and I would try to go back and analyze every match I was in, okay, it wasn't a four-star match, but did it at least make sense? Maybe it was a four-star match, but did it still make sense? Was it a two-star match? Did it make sense? As long as it did, okay. With those guys, I remember vaguely what we actually did, but with all those talented guys with the hearts and the bulldogs and all those great baby faces, uh, man, we could just go in and tear the joint down, and I'm sure we just – we did. We got with those guys during the day and said, hey, man, we want to feature everybody if we possibly can. That's what we tried to do. Um, the fact that we bailed out with the Rockers, fighting to the back just kind of takes away from the action in the ring. So it was just one of the, you know, they could have beaten us that night. That would have been fine. Just let us do something once we get to the back. Maybe when the match is over, you cut to the back and we're kicking their ass in the back or something. We didn't have to do a fight all the way down the, the uh, oh, we had been beaten quite a bit, trust us. Uh, getting beat one more time by those guys wouldn't have hurt us. Your first time working with Bret Hart, it's got to be here, right? You wouldn't have ran across him before. No. What'd you think? You know, I mean, obviously we'll talk about not hard another time, but Bret Hart in particular known for being one of the all time best in ring technicians. Was that your testimony here in early 88? Very solid. Bret was a wrestler's wrestler. He, uh, you know, he was very talented and he wasn't a flip flop and fly guy. You know, Bret liked to mix it up and swap holes and all that stuff. And, uh, 
you know, made everything credible and believable. I enjoyed working with Brett. What about the Bulldogs? We've often heard as wrestling fans that Dynamite Kid was a special talent. Whenever I suggest that to Bruce Pritchard, he says, eh, I never really got it. But Bruce was never in the ring with him. You were. What say you? Well, the thing was, even though he was gassed up and jacked up and looked tremendous, he still wasn't a big guy. Put him in that category with Chris Benoit. You would look at him and go, that's a good-looking athlete, but he's not... He's not 6'3", he's not 280 pounds. How's he going to fare with these bigger guys? Once the match got started and he started laying into you, nobody questioned how big he was. They were a really good team, and uh, they didn't work like body guys. And, you know, when it was time to get after it, those guys would take some bumps, and they would give you some bumps, and they would, you know, they were very um, accommodating as far as working hard. So... We enjoyed working with them. I would have loved to work with them, uh, a program. Let's talk about, uh, some of your tag team partners here, the conquistadors, the Bolsheviks, the Rougeaux. Tell me about those teams as best you can. Oh, well, those, you know, it was, I didn't pay that much attention. We were just, we were put out there, uh, together with, there was really, which I guess is part of the the allure to it at that time was just to put a bunch of random teams together. Uh, we didn't try to do anything in conjunction with those guys. And they certainly didn't try to do anything in conjunction with us. It was just do their thing and get out. And when it was time to get put out, they got put out. Um, how do you find out it's time? Is somebody giving you a seat? Is the referee communicating with someone ringside and they tell you, or I know you're weird about communicating some of this, so you can tell me to shut the fuck up whenever you're ready. But this seems like a giant cluster when you got 20 dudes here and it's almost akin to a battle Royal, the way you said, well, it's time for you to go out. But if you're in the middle of the shit, how do you keep up with that? Well, it's up to you. You know, you know when you're going out and who's putting you out. And that's really everything else. You're just calling on the fly and making it, you know, if you don't talk to guys during the day, then you get in there and end up in the ring with them. In those days, heels ran the match, period. It was up to you. If you had a great match in those days, agent would come up to you or whoever it was, and they would go, you guys had a great match. Thank you. If the match stunk, the heel got his ass chewed out. It was on him. So... Um, you would try to, you know, make sense of what, let's just say we were going to put out whoever, uh, whatever team you want to pick, the Bulldogs. Okay, how can we get them as high as we can possibly get them, and how can we use our teamwork to screw those guys? Uh, because you just didn't want to, I just want to spine buster Davey Boy Smith, my God, and count him one down, one, two, three. Right. There's no heat. There's no heat in that. And people would just look at, you know, even though I did do that to Sean in one of these same matches, which he was pissed about, I think it might have been the very next year in our last pay-per-view there, or mine. But that's for another day, another story. Um, that was what we, you would get. You're out third, uh, be put out by the conquistadors, let's just say, whatever it was. It's up to you guys to put it together. 
I'm saying as far as the time cue though, like when do you know when it's been, I mean, obviously they've got to back time the show and they want the show to go off the air at the same time. I don't think this is the IFB era. Is there someone at ringside on a headset who puts a pencil in his mouth or tugs his tie or something silly like that? Somebody would get word to the, uh, somebody on a headset would get word to the referee somehow. Yeah. Okay. It's so-and-so's time to go. He would just come over and, Hey, time to get out. And you would take a minute or so to adjust whatever you had to do. If you were on the apron and it was your turn to go out, you'd just start screaming at whoever, you know, make it real. Hey, give them to me, give them to me. And the guy would know, okay, it must be his time to get out. And he would tag out and you'd come in, do your finish. Of course, you're working with all the top talent during this title reign. Um, Dusty, Ron Garvin, Manny Fernandez, Magnum, Sam Houston, Don Carnoodle, Jimmy Valiant, everybody in the territory. You're also in the Crockett Cup in 86. This time you're with Tully. You're going to uh, lose in the second round of the Fantastics. Ultimately, you wind up losing your television title on September 9th, 1986 in Columbia, South Carolina. And who better to lose it to after 248 days than the American dream, Dusty Rhodes. Uh, it's kind of fun to think about now that you're his son's coach, but he beat you to end your first television title reign. What was it like working with dusty here in 86? Well, he was such a huge star and he was so over, he was so charismatic. Just going after my championship elevated me. And the fact that he beat me elevated me. Rolling out of that ring after wrestling Dusty Rhodes for however length of time it was, 10, 15 minutes, and getting beat right in the middle was better than beating 25 other guys that were just middle of the road. I mean, he was the star, the top guy. He was the American dream. And uh, for him to want that championship, come after me and take that championship – in my mind, it just elevated me, and it also gave me uh, fodder for promos and going forward a chance to start plotting on how to get it back. So it gave me all kind of ammo. Let's talk about uh, your next win. You win this one from the Great Muda in 1990. So uh, after you lose the television title to Dusty in 86, a lot happens, of course. You even leave the company go work for the world wrestling federation. But then when you come back very quickly, you're put against the great Muda. It's January 2nd, 1990 here in Gainesville, Georgia. It airs on the power hour. What's your, uh, what's your thinking about the television title here to get it back so quickly, you know, obviously maybe the original plan was you were going to be with Tully and things are going to look a little differently. And, and even though the money may be different, you've got to feel pretty good about being put right back into the title picture, getting a win. Over the great Muda. Well, yeah, I walked back into that angle with Buzz Sawyer, Muda, Dragon Master, Gary Hart. And I was wrestling those guys in six mans and, and tags and individually. Uh, the television champion was Muda. I don't think Muda was going out every single week and having a 20 minute match. I don't know the history before me actually. Um, but I do know that there had been so much water under the bridge and there was 
so many shenanigans that went on during my separation between Crockett and um, WCW that uh, when I got a chance to wrestle for that TV title and Muda, I've watched it back a couple of times and he gave me a good, uh, he gave me a good match. And uh, I think he worked very hard and uh, he did things the right way. And I think at the time, those guys were being used well enough. I mean, anytime you had a match with Buzz Sawyer, you were in a bar fight. There's no other way around it. It was, uh, you earned your money that day. So beating Muda for that title kind of put me back into a, a prominent position and, and a position to be on TV every week and let everyone know. You can't just assume everyone knows you're back from the WWF. Everybody don't watch every week. Things escape, you know. Uh, information escapes people. They miss a week or two, and God, when did he come back? But having that television title and, and being in a feature match every week, which I loved, I knew what it was going to do for me long term. I didn't know this far ahead we would be sitting here having the conversation about it, but it's one of those things that worked and it lasted and it gave me a chance to do, you know, what I want to do, and that's just wrestle. Forget the politics and all the BS and all the social climate. I just wanted to wrestle. And that's what it provided me. Let's talk about how the television title maybe changed from the Crockett era to now the WCW era back in 86, when you win the belt the first time, are you, are, are you getting a bigger payoff as a result of being the television champion? Are you featured more prominently as far as placement on the card or the posters? Is there more expected of you from a promotional aspect or did anything change? No, I think it, it helps your positioning, you know, and, you know, back in the day, it was where you were positioned on the card, how much you made. And there was also those underlying situations of where was I two weeks ago? What were my contributions? Okay. Now I'm on third from the last. Let's just say, you know, does the reaction it you know does it match how much the house was up week to week uh from a couple of weeks ago now you're in the next to last match you're in a tv title your opponent is bigger it was based you know your payoff was pretty much based on where you were on the card but sometimes you know you could be a little lower on the card if the plans were for you a lot bigger than the guy that was after you they just for positioning reasons, had it backwards, you still made whatever the payoff guy had in mind for where you were going, not necessarily where you were on that night. But the next night, you could have been on last. It could have been me and Dusty somewhere for the television title on last. Um, it just, uh, you know, your payoffs were commensurate with basically what their plans had for you. Well, you, uh, you guys are masters on the mic, both you and Rick, and these are two very, very memorable promos, but now it's time for the match. Uh, when you come through the curtain fresh after having, uh, had an upset stomach and, and tossed your cookies a little bit, are you, or does that settle you down? Do you feel like once you got that out of your system, you were okay. When you walk in front of the crowd, is it like riding a bicycle again? Or are you still nervous on your way to the ring? little nervous till he chopped me the first time. And uh, 
that woke me up. That put me back in uh, fight mode, and uh, it got my thinking straightened out. And um, we went from there. It was it was just instinct, and you go to grab a hold, and I'll counter it, and I'll try to grab a hold, and you counter it, and we'll do some fighting in the middle, and we'll see where it goes. Talk to me a little bit about the crowd that night. It's in Asheville. Do you have any friends or family in the crowd to come out and watch? No, sir. Uh, did not. Um, it was just uh, Rick and I and, and uh, the audience. You guys go 22 minutes and 37 seconds. Smeltzer would write, most of the underneath wrestlers were sitting together faces and heels were at least kept separate watching this trying to get over the importance of the match the psychology was excellent they did a lot of the normal flair or anderson routine with slight cross-ups uh, as in getting the story that they each knew each other's moves but the other was one step ahead recognizing it and it turned into a very good match with near falls going back and forth uh, neither really came across as a face or a heel Anderson was selling his knee big from long figure four sequences. When Pillman came to ringside, Pillman punches Flair, who punches him back. And as Flair turns his back, Pillman gives him an enziguri with a cowboy boot to set up their nitro match the next night. And a staggered Flair falls into Arn Anderson's DDT for the pin. Three and a half stars. So pretty good review here. Lots of storytelling. Maybe not exactly... Um, what fans would have hoped for and that there is a little bit of outside interference, but that's standard horseman fare at the time. So it does, uh, keep that story alive. Tell me a little bit about when you knew you were going to uh, win and what the finish was. And were you yourself sort of shocked that, uh, I'm about to beat Ric Flair on pay-per-view here. Well, it was, uh, it was shocking and, uh, when I did hear what we were going to do, you know, I looked at that and I went, okay, let's turn this around. If, let's just say a Pillman came down and he screwed me on behalf of Rick to gain some favor because he was the lead horseman and he wanted in. That would have made sense. So us going this route and reversing it and him helping me win would have made sense. And if you're the guy that's getting screwed, being the fact that it was, we made no bones about it. There was always three or four or five of us on a guy, and you know we would gang up on a guy. That way, we were sure to not getting hurt. If you can, if you can cream a guy without getting hurt, you got no risk. That's a pretty good proposition. So, from a storytelling aspect, it absolutely worked. Now, there might have been some folks that were disappointed that it wasn't a clean finish, but I don't think a clean finish would have helped anybody. I don't think if I just made a comeback and DDT Ric Flair, anybody would have swallowed it. Um, probably not. So uh, I think it worked in that respect. And and uh, if you're the outside guy looking in, that's how the horseman would have did it. Uh, if is four stars the top rating for Meltzer five five okay I was hoping he didn't give us that close to uh, uh, the top score because my lack of skills I'm sure made that a lot less exciting than it should have been and trust me I've always been the first one to say 
I don't do much. I can't do much. I just try to make the few things that I do, I try to do them well, and I try to put them in a spot where they're impactful. And uh, But as far as being a flashy performer, certainly with Rick doing the upside-down bump and the strut and then all the his stuff that he does, I am in no way, shape, or form an opponent for him in that department. So I'm glad that it was three and a half. If uh, five is the top, I'm still very flattered that I got that kind of rating. Thank you, Meltzer. Appreciate it. And uh, that's that. Tell me about the, uh, you know, the way the match was received afterwards. You know, when you uh, hear the bell, you come back through the curtain. Are you relieved that it live up to your expectations? Was Rick happy? What do you remember about post-match? Yeah, I think everybody was happy with it. It was a surprise ending. Uh, I don't think anybody in the building saw that coming, and um, it still had a little bit of a, a screw job. Well, it had a lot of a screw job to it, so it didn't hurt Rick in any fashion, and the fact that I could claim, even if there would have been a stack of pianos fell out of the ceiling on top of Rick, for me to be able to cover him, and get the win, that's one of the things you can hang your hat on for the rest of your career. Uh, you know, 10 years from then, you would look in the record books and you would go, okay, Arn Anderson wins over Ric Flair. They're not going to have that 10 pianos fell out of the top of the ceiling and that was the circumstances around it. And it's something as a heel, you know, you would go back to and bring it up 10 years later. It's like beating Hulk Hogan twice, you know, two weeks in a row. It doesn't matter that you shot him with a spear gun and backed over him with a dump truck and took out a chainsaw and cut off two of his ankles where he couldn't stand up and then threw some powder in his face and covered it. One, two, three. The fact that you had beaten him twice in a row as a heel, if you are really are a heel and you're not trying to be cool and you're not trying to get over like a, a baby face would, you would hang your hat on that. And uh, that's what I did with Rick, and that helped our story. Final angle on the show. Saw Big Show holding Edge's head in place on top of Rollins' briefcase with Rollins threatening to curb stomp him. And Rollins said this would make him a paraplegic. And, uh, he's a husband and a father now. And then Cena came out and Rollins told him he's useless unless he allowed the authority back. And, uh, they teased the curb stomp, but then Cena says they could come back. Rollins says he's going to curb stomp him anyway. That leads to Cena hitting the ring and cleaning house edge gets away and Rollins curb stomps Cena. So an interesting scenario here, but the, the gist is, Hey, it's WrestleMania season. We got to have John Cena back, and we need somebody to hate on. So, what's uh, what's Stephanie and Triple H doing? Is that basically the gist? Well, you describing that whole scenario by using the word "interesting" is interesting to me. I might have used another adjective, but anytime you go on TV and you lay a stipulation out there, your word should be good, right? Yeah. When you double back on it, doesn't it put a little bit of a rough edge on your credibility? Yeah. I mean, I can't argue that at all. <laughs> or is it me? Is it just me? I think, I think wrestling uh, folks have always just given a pass and they just say, well, it's wrestling. 
but I mean, if the steps don't matter, then, then we shouldn't care about future steps. That's certainly the precedent that we've set with our audience. Yeah, that's, and you know, I guess my problem is Conrad, just to be honest with you is I'm not sitting here. I know it all and a, and a really, uh, intelligent, articulate master of the business. I'm just a wrestling fan, just like everybody out there. And when you say something from a company standard, this is not just some talent out there getting themselves over or getting heat on themselves or developing credibility or saying something that's going to be good. When you say it as a company, you should probably stand behind it and probably make your word good. Because I mean, I'll just skip ahead to right now. What this year would make you want to watch the draft? You mean the, uh, the NFL draft? Nope. Oh, I mean the WWE draft. I didn't have anything that made me want to watch the draft this year. Because my point is on steps, you know, what I saw last year was, okay, you're going to be traded here. You're going to be traded here. You're here. You're here. You're there. You're here. Oh, but by the way, we're going to have a special stipulation. What was it called? Yeah. Where you can just hop show to show. Yeah. Anyway. So I guess my point is, you know, you build up to this big, big draft, all this talent go to SmackDown. It's the only place you can see them. All these go to raw. That's the only place you can see them. And if you're stuck to that, you would help develop your brands. You would see what your loyalty is. You would see which one they prefer. But, you know, Roman Reigns hopping back and forth. Yeah, he's a big star. And, yeah, they want to see him on on both shows. But why have a draft? Right. So uh, doubling back to the steps and all this stuff, it, it just, you know, it was just part of a hot-shotting campaign. And I know the company was trying to jog business and, and, and all those things. But. I don't know. I just believe your word should be good on some stuff. It's, uh, you know, the word I used was interesting, but we're back to John Cena as, as the top guy and the savior of the company. And we're back to Stephanie and triple H as the top heel act. Do you think we have, uh, we've sort of milked both of those cows dry at this point. They were great in that capacity. They really were, and they got a lot of heat, and there's no bigger heel on earth than Stephanie McMahon. She's just, she's great in that role. Hunter was good in that role, yes, but it had been stretched out, and it was, you know, go to that well so many times. The new was off of it. You know, um, the bloom was off of the rose, and it just, you know, it, it was just going back to the same hold a couple of too many times, you know, especially because when they are in that power position, there's nothing you can really do to them that makes sense anyway. Right. So agreed. Yes. Going back to that same old was, was a little too much. Do you remember any sort of like wrestling nugget or information or something you carried with you for the rest of your career that Watts maybe gave you maybe a piece of psychology or a rule of thumb or anything like that? Because I think sometimes Bill Watts gets, um, for better or worse, right or wrong. He, he would be criticized for not being, um, I don't know. We'll say a little rough around the edges, but did he ever give you any, anything that you were like, Oh shit, that makes sense. I'm going to, I'm going to carry that with me. He never spoke to me. 
<laughs> That's the nugget that I took with me. I worked for him for five months, and he never said a word to me until he told me I was leaving in two weeks. Okay. Well, there you go. Well, that that, that makes sense. That adds up. Uh, you however, talk- however, however, the one nugget before I forget it, because it's very important if you look at the way I've conducted myself the rest of my career. As I was leaving, and Teddy was still there, obviously, he could have been there for 10 years if he wanted to be. That's how over he was. He said, now listen, <clears throat> I helped you. You're going to run across, if this if this pans out for you, and I believe you're going to be around for a long time. He says, you're about to figure this out. He said, there's going to be a young kid that's going to need your help. You're going to look at him and go, you know what? He's got something. I want you, since I did it for you, if you think that kid truly deserves the help, I want you to pull him aside and help him get to get to the next level. That's all the thank you that I'll ever need. And it just so happens both of his kids came along mm. and I was in a position to help them. And that's one of those deja vu's that really feels good. Man, what a small world wrestling is. You know, I, I didn't even think about the fact that you worked with them, but Absolutely. Uh, talk to me about Matt Bourne. You mentioned, uh, that he was one of your early tag team partners. And, uh, we, we, we sort of reminded everybody that he was the doink character, but way back when Matt Bourne was a wrestler and a half, but he had some, uh, interesting lifestyle habits, any fun or or interesting Matt Bourne stories you can share with us? Well, um, Let's just say that Matt was very accomplished by the time I became his partner. I don't think Matt um, really ever felt like I had enough experience or was ready for the position that I was put in being his partner when we went to uh, Georgia Championship Wrestling. Um, I know that there was some underlying animosity, and I don't know if it was just Matt had animosity towards the world or if it was just me or what the situation was. Um, Matt and I did get into one of the few scrapes that uh, I got in during my 37 years in the business. Really? Yeah, not well known, and uh, I don't take any pride in it whatsoever. There's nothing worse than the boys getting into a fight because it immediately separates the locker room, cuts it right in half. His friends, your friends, neutral folks, and it just makes for a very bad element. Plus, you got to go out there and and trust that guy a lot of times, you know, with your body. And if you don't believe that you can do that, it puts a big damper on what's going on, but, uh, Matt liked to party and I'm not saying anything about that. Hey, I've drank a few beers myself. That's for damn sure. Uh, over the course of the last 37 years. So, but, uh, Matt went out, had a good time one night and, uh, I woke up and guess it was Paul Ellering, myself and Matt, the three of us were healing a room. So we had, uh, two beds and a, jerked a mattress off that in those days you called it healing a room jerked the mattress off the bed and flip a coin and somebody got the box springs and which was the writing of the three choices and then somebody got the mattress on the floor and somebody got a full bed it was just luck of the draw 
But I woke up and Matt was standing there uh, straddling me with some choice words as I cut the line on. And so all I remember hearing is, I wish I could piss on you. Well, <clears throat> I'm not a tough guy, but I've never been scared. And at that point in time, you imagine a little rage in there with it. Uh, it was on. And um, Matt and I got in a pretty good scuffle there. I was lucky enough to get the advantage. Matt said, that's enough. I got up, went down the hall. By then, there was enough noise, I guess, that it brought a couple of the boys out in the hall. Uh, Larry Zabisco, God bless him, said, well, Arn, what's going on down there? I said, well, I just got into a nice little scuffle with Matt. Really don't feel comfortable trying to sleep in that room. I'm going to get another room. He said, well, I've got a second bed. I said, if you don't mind, I'll take it. So I took it, and uh, the next day, called the room, asked Matt if it was cool to go down there, just like it never happened. Um, no animosity going forward, never had another crossword. It's just one of those things, I guess, that had to happen. Well, let's uh, let's lighten the mood a little bit here, Arn. Let's talk about some, some fun stuff, some ribs, some locker room stories. You got anything funny you can share with us from back in the day? Oh, let's see. Let's see. Let's see. Um, one of the things that I felt was, uh, I thought was pretty damn amusing. Uh, if you know the characters or if you just look at it on face value, when we're in Pensacola, there was a guy named Rick McGraw, God bless him who has since passed, but, uh, came to work down there for, he was there probably four months and, uh, he had the bright idea that, uh, he wasn't going to get a hotel or an apartment. And uh, so upon reflection of that, I went, well, where's the guy going to stay? Turned out he would go work the town, drive back to Pensacola, go to the 2001 or one of the uh, watering holes that uh, the boys uh, frequented in those days. And then he would immediately go to the beach, get out his lounge chair, set his cooler beside him, throw a towel out and sleep whatever was left of the night until the sun came up, which woke him up. He would walk about 50 feet to the bathhouse, take a shower, put on a coat of oil, and good for the day. <laughs> yeah. One one thing missing, what about home? You don't have a home. But, you know, I asked him about that. He said, hey, what's that sun's up? It's all gravy. So... There you go. Yeah. How about washing the gear? I mean, that had to be a stinky motherfucker. Not too long after that, huh? You would be surprised at the guys that would get to the arena, wash out their tights in the sink, wring them out in the towel, put them on good to go. I would suggest without the, without a roof over your head, washing your tights would be the last thing <laughs> on your schedule. <laughs> yeah, probably, probably. Kevin Nash has, uh, talked about this a lot, obviously in the 20 something years since this has happened. And he said that losing you from wrestling hurt. And he said that a lot of fans didn't realize how good you were on so many levels. And he said, it took about an hour and a half to get dressed up for this parody. And as you mentioned, he said it was his idea. Other folks say it was Terry Taylor's idea. Did you ever have a conversation with Kevin Nash or Terry Taylor about this parody and whose idea it was and how it came to be or 
What can you tell us about that? Well, I went to Nash's room after we got back from the arena because I wanted to ask him if it was a personal attack, if I had heat with him, if this was, uh, you know, if this was his way to send to me, a, not Arn Anderson, but Marty Lundy, a message, you know, and, and Kevin looked me in the eye and he said, no, 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 it's just, we're just trying to get heat. We're just, we're working here. And I believe him. I mean, if Kevin Nash has an issue with, with anybody, me included, I'm sure he would just address it directly and man to man. And, and that was it. But I had to ask because it was so personal in the attack I felt. It wasn't anything standard wrestling. It wasn't any man. Maybe that's why it lasted the test of time. There was so overboard. But I went to his room. Did I have a few beers in my hand? Yes, I did. You know, again, I'm not, I'm never going to say, well, I never drank anything. I didn't drink a dozen beers every night after working out during the day and wrestling at night and have a dozen cold beers. Well, of course I did. There was probably a couple of nights I had two dozen. Not the point. The point is don't bring it into the workplace. And, and I didn't, and they shouldn't have, but. It is what it is. So I did have that conversation with Kevin, offered him a couple of the beers, which I think he took. Um, and so I left it behind that day. When we finished our conversation, I put it behind me. I moved on. That was the end of it. And, you know, if we weren't doing this podcast, it probably wouldn't have entered my mind one way or the other and hasn't for years nash has said that uh you guys knew what was going to happen beforehand and it wasn't until the wives got involved and they said that you uh, were made to look like quote a bunch of boobs that there was an issue and he said that apparently aaron told you that nash made you look like a stupid fucking drunk and that the only heat that existed was uh residual heat from the wives and he says that the cooler was yours. And when you confronted him later at the hotel and asked, as he said, with quote, with like five beers in his hands, Kevin, why'd you do that? He looked down at your hands and just got in the elevator and you told the story that you went to his room. So whether it's getting in an elevator or the room or whatever, st still, uh, Nashville's sort of indicated that, Hey, we were just doing art imitating life. But no heat after you guys talked that day. Did you ever have a conversation with uh, with Terry Taylor about it at all? Um, it came up before I even knew it was Terry's idea. I don't know when it came up, but it was years later, and I mean a decade later, maybe. We were sitting around a room. I don't know if it was uh, WrestleMania or, oh, you know what I think it was? It was like when WrestleMania was in Orlando at the stadium and Terry was working down um, for NXT. And those guys came over, obviously, to the show um, and we're all sitting around a trailer and that came up somehow. I don't know how that came up. Terry looked across the room at me and went, he used to call me Reverend. Because I guess I'd start preaching or whatever the deal was, preaching, being bitching, I imagine. But uh, 
He said, uh, yeah, sorry about that, Reverend. That was my bad. And I don't remember what my response even was to him, but I knew what he was talking about. I knew it was his idea then. And, you know, it was a half-ass apology, you know. He would have been one of the guys, first and foremost, back there slapping each other and high-fiving, uh, you know, the NWO when it was over. So it was what it was. Um, my wife was insulted more than me because I got a lot thicker skin. She's a regular human being and a pretty damn good one, to be honest with you. Uh, she's got a kind heart. She also knows this business is that, is entertainment business. Um, she, like me, just couldn't figure out that if they want to get heat on me, is that the only thing they're going to do? You know, is that all they got to use, you know, as a tool? And... Um, it is what it is. It'll be up to the test of time. You know, fans will tell you that's the one thing I love about wrestling fans. They'll tell you when they love something, and, you know, if they love that, they'll go, why are you getting so emotional, aren't you? You're a badass. You did some rotten things. You broke some people's legs. You broke some people's arms. Five of you guys would scrub some guy's face in the cement. What are you getting upset for? Yeah, those were all wrestling angles and they were all designed to have that baby face kick your ass when it was time and it was all meant to drop to draw money. This just looked like a Saturday night off the wall skit just to bury a bunch of guys because maybe some of those guys, not even me, had heat with other members of that group. If you read between the lines. Well, let's talk about that. You know, Kevin Nash obviously a political player backstage in that era of WCW Scott Hall, more of the same Ric Flair had been, uh, on again, off again, Booker for years, lots of guys, right or wrong had said that Flair was hogging up the spotlight for himself. And you had defended that with your life at times. Uh, do you assume that maybe some of this was their way to sort of get a dig at Flair as let's go after his best friend and this real moment that they had let's try to ridicule that and reduce it well it seems a little bit ironic that they featured me on on you know when they were scooping all the dirt out and dropping it on on all of us it's like i got about 25 more shovelfuls than anybody else you know, but, you know, if they want to go back and really be cute about it and, and defend it and they're going to say, well, yeah, but it was your retirement speech that that started all this. That's what we were making fun of. OK. If you want to go that route, that's fine. You know, it's I guess throughout history. And I just, you know, it's something I accepted a long time ago. Rick and I were friends for a long time. We were best friends for a long time. Rick opened doors for me, but I think I paid off, you know, every single time that he suggested me for a role. It, it didn't come across as him taking care of his friend because I was able to carry the mail and I was able to get it done. And whatever he needed done or suggested me for, well, I pulled it off and I pulled my own weight. I think Rick was on top for so long and had so much power in the business with the office over the, you know, 
long time, which w- bled well into the WCW days. You know, and I think a lot of people held that against him. Um, a lot of people, you know, got tired of Rick being in that top, top spot. A lot of young guys, I guess, felt cheated because he was in that top, top spot for so long. And uh, was it a way to get to him through me? Absolutely. All right. So that's going to bring us to a close today. Really appreciate everybody tuning in. We'll be back at you next week, and we're going to adjust the schedule accordingly. Meaning next week, instead of being back to a hashtag ask Arn anything, we're going to bring you super brawl too. That was the original plan for today. And then on the 17th, man, we're going to hit you with that old elimination chamber 2018. How's that for recent, uh, coming up on the 24th, we'll be back to our usual pattern. Hashtag ask Arn anything. You don't want to miss it. We've got lots of great stuff planned, but man, what else you don't want to miss is your opportunity to be hero this Valentine's day. You've got to go right now to IHateStevenSinger.com. It really is that simple. They make it an absolute no-brainer because this is a real long-stem American Beauty Rose. A real rose that's been deeply and lavishly dipped in pure 24-karat gold. And this thing's going to last forever. It'll never wilt. It'll never die. It even comes with a lifetime guarantee. And oh, by the way, it's shipped for free and starting at just 59 bucks. Go take a look for yourself right now at IHateStevenSinger.com. Click on the roses and become a hero this Valentine's Day. That's IHateStevenSinger.com. It's an absolute no-brainer. It looks like it costs 10 times as much. You're going to get a lot of credit. And if that's what you're looking for this Valentine's Day is a little extra play, man, they got what you're looking for right now at IHateStevenSinger.com. No doubt that Arn's off to a great start. There'll be plenty more every Tuesday right here on Westwood One where you can also find my podcast with Conrad called What Happened When. It's available on Wednesdays. Wait, that's tomorrow. Has anyone seen Conrad? What the? Ron Anderson and Conrad Thompson. I'm Tony Schiavone. Hey everybody, this is Dan Bespris, host of Fantasy NBA Today, a daily fantasy basketball podcast. We cover every box score from every game, every day, plus bonus shows on buy low opportunities, players to stash, schedule analysis, and really anything you could need to smash your league into deliciously tiny pieces. Catch the Fantasy NBA Today podcast, part of the Believe Network, on YouTube or wherever you listen.